Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. With his first book, The Capitalist Unconscious, Samo Tomsic, a philosopher and researcher at the Humboldt University in Berlin, provided the thorough account of the influence of Karl Marx on the work of French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. Then, in his second book, The Labor of Enjoyment, he moved even further by proposing a fusion of the works of Marx, Freud and Lacan as a means to unravel the workings of politics, economy and society. In this episode, Samo Tomsic talks about the articulation between psychoanalysis and Marxism, the damaged life of the subject they both describe, the importance of enjoyment in the reproduction of capitalism, and the multiple meanings of alienation as a default way of being. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I'm Jens Orespo-Admitriou. This episode was recorded in lockdown mode and edited by Stefanos Kostadinidis. Samo Tomsic, welcome to the Archipelago. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, last week I interviewed Stathis Gurguris, who has applied um, Freudian dream analysis in studying nation building. And so, this, since this is the constant problem that arises whenever, to try to take, whenever we try to take psychoanalysis out of the couch of the analyst, uh, I'd like to start by asking you pretty much the same first question I asked, I asked him. Um, what is it that allows us to examine politics, economy, and society through psychoanalysis? I mean, is it a metaphor that allows to describe how they function, or is there some material ground for that? Yes, I mean, that's. Uh, thank you for starting with this question, because it is indeed uh, cutting to the, to the core of the problem, uh, what to do with psychoanalysis, and that's, uh, or, or what would be its uh, yeah, uh, scope of uh, application. Where does it stop? Where is, where where do we start uh, making wild psychoanalysis, as, as Freud would would put it uh, himself? Uh, so there there is of course uh, something like a boundary, um, but this boundary might be 
fuzzier than one than one would uh, think, and uh, maybe it it really comes <clears throat> on maybe an attempt to just dare to make uh, to make a possible application of psychoanalysis and then see what are the consequences whether whether this works or not i mean this is not really seriously uh, uh, meant but uh, in a way you know freud when he started uh, when he started practicing uh, as an analyst or when he invented uh, this uh, uh, method of uh, treatment uh, of men so-called mental illnesses he stumbled upon this issue himself you know so it wasn't something that uh, that others who were fond of psychoanalysis invented or introduced into psychoanalysis and somehow corrupted it so in a way psychoanalysis was always already out of its field, <laughs> to, to put it somewhat clumsily. Uh, what I mean to say by this is that uh, um, Freud in, you know, uh, this intimacy of, an, uh, of the analytic cabinet um, very early uh, saw that there is a link between individual so-called disorders, maladies, uh, uh, um, mental illnesses, uh, neurotic disturbances, and so on and so forth, and uh, uh, the social context. Uh, so, in a way, uh, the social emerged within, uh, with, within the private, so to speak, uh, uh, very early on in, in the analytic setting. Um, now the question is, of course, how how does this emergence of the social happen, and uh, uh, what to do with it? Um, and there have been various attempts to kind of frame this. Uh, you know, there there have been uh, schools of uh, psychoanalysis and uh, also you know more leftist uh, uh, appropriations of psychoanalysis for critical theory, which have claimed that uh, um, Freud developed. Uh, uh, socio-economic etiology of uh, neurosis, uh, meaning that uh, he uh, very clearly recognized social and also economic uh, factors among the causes for uh, uh, our mental disturbances and uh, anxieties and so on. Now, nowadays, we find this on every corner. So it feels, uh, it feels like a banality to, uh, to say this that there is a socio-economic etiology of neurosis in Freud. Um, at the same time, um, I would say that um, there is still a huge uh, issue how, how, to, how, to understand, uh, how to understand this. So we can depart from the uh, classical opposition or we can depart from you know, just uh, assuming that there is uh, a multiplicity of individuals which uh, are embedded in the social context and that there is something like an opposition between individual and, uh, and society, uh, that we are dealing with two different yet analogous uh, registers which kind of stand in uh, more or less sharp opposition to each other. Um, I don't think this is what Freud is doing, and uh, I think uh, um, that he's more on the other side, that there is a sort of boxing, you know, happening, that uh, the individual and the society are a result of uh, 
um, you know, what the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan would say, uh, the primacy of the symbolic order. Um, so the symbolic order, which is, uh, uh, you know, sustaining both the um, construction of social relations, social bonds, the way our individual bodies relate to each other and form this social uh, social totality. Um, and at the same time, what constitutes this, you know, subjectivity that that or, uh, that emerges in uh, uh, within this individual body as a, as a speaking, as a cultural, as a political being, and so on. So um, Lacan kind of uh, made this uh, another step. You know, he he one could say that he deconstructed this, or at least questioned uh, this stable and uh, assumed opposition between uh, uh, individual and social, and basically focused on what is what unites them, where these two poles come together, and that would be, you know, the uh, the level of language for him or the level of, uh, yeah, the symbolic order, to put it again in this manner. And what he fabricates out of it is a figure of the subject that is not mappable to the individual, you know, to this idea of the individual that we uh, um, carry with ourselves, uh, um, you know, with all the uh, historical luggage uh, of philosophy, of political economy, of uh, uh, yeah, uh, economic and political liberalism, uh, and so on and so forth. So, um, the Lacanian subject is not reducible to consciousness, it's not reducible to this individuality that you know, precisely in this respect that it's divided, you know, it's uh, it's basically negating negating the first assumption of uh, uh, individualism or the assumption of, uh, uh, of the existence of individuals, namely to just look into the etymology that they are indivisible, uh, that you cannot divide them any further. For Lacan, the subject is actually a division that, that emerges as an effect of the way uh, the symbolic order functions within the uh, within the body, but also between bodies. So, uh, so uh, there is it's an effect that is irreducible uh, to both an individual, a unit of the bo a bodily unit, and also to to the social context. So uh, it's kind of a gray zone between the two. And uh, this is this is, for instance, the line of thought. Okay, that we can kind of very strongly pinpoint in in Lacan, which is why also Lacan at some point spoke of homology between what Freud is doing and what Marx is doing. So it's uh, it's again making strong the point of the symbolic register and the way it functions, uh, and the symbolic register being, in Freud's case, language and social, uh, um, well, you know, like fam familial uh, structures, family, bonds, uh, and uh, in Marx's uh, context, of course, uh, uh, the register of economic valorization, finance, uh, economic exchange, and but also family, uh, familial uh, relations. So um, there is this intersection 
in logics, which is, uh, as you know, yeah, the uh, the discipline that tries to uh, basically uh, think think uh, the bone uh, the bones of the symbolic order yeah, but, but if i'm if i'm not wrong i mean even lacan that uh, turned to marx at some point as you said uh, did not end up challenging the symbolic order in any way right um no i mean uh, but what what do you mean with challenging the symbolic order i mean it was it was taken as um, as uh, this is how it is this is how it works <laughs> we'll work with that <laughs> It depends. Well, it depends a little bit, you know, how you uh, how you want to turn Lacan. Because uh, I mean, I'm not uh, I'm not hiding my uh, my agenda. You know, I am uh, uh, convinced that uh, uh, one cannot uh, uh, make neutral or unbiased readings of psychoanalysis. Um, one one has to assume a certain side not only pro or contra psychoanalysis, but also left or conservative. So it's very easy to read Freud as a conservative thinker, as a, you know, uh, the child of the patriarchal atmosphere of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire uh, and its decline uh, and being nostalgic about, you know, the old figure of the, uh, the old strong figure of authority, uh, embodied in the uh, Austrian-Hungarian uh, Kaiser, you know, the, the emperor, um, and this translated in the figure of the father within the family context. So, of course, it's very easy to do that. And also, you can, uh, you can very easily um, uh, outline a conservative or liberal, let's say, uh, liberal conservative reading of Lacan. Uh, um, if you look at his you know, most politicized or, you know, like engaged political uh, seminars from the late 60s, uh, he makes very ambiguous remarks, which can be bent in one way or uh, or another. For instance, when he says to the revolting uh, post-68 students in one of the gatherings where he was invited to, you know, you know and was confronted by them, uh, uh, them demanding him to practice self-criticism and he kind of exploded and said, uh, well, you uh, consider yourself revolutionaries. What you are demanding as revolutionaries is a, uh, is a new master and you will get one. So, of course, it doesn't sound like a particularly kind thing to, uh, to say, but uh, at the same time, um, you know, if one looks at uh, fr uh, La what Lacan does with the notion of enjoyment, for instance, um, and associates this remark with, uh, you know, his attempt to outline a certain critical view, critical perspective on the link between enjoyment and relations of domination and subjection, then one gets uh, a slightly different uh, uh, baseline of, uh, uh, of, you know, Lacan's seemingly most cynical remarks. Um, what, what Lacan is, is, is basically pointing out is that in capitalism, I mean, the efficiency of capitalism uh, is tied to, uh, on the one hand, or one aspect of its efficiency is tied to, uh, to the fact that it, um, it kind of loosens the, uh, uh, or it kind of it kind of produces to a certain epidemic to uh, epidemic of uh, 
of fantasies of enjoyment, uh, a chase after enjoyment. You know what what Lacan, for instance, uh, uh, calls surplus enjoyment, uh, in reference to Marx's notion of surplus value, um, and. Uh, what is interesting in this uh, um, in this notion of surplus enjoyment is that uh, it ex it can be very uh, useful for explaining phenomena like racism or phenomena like consumerism and also phenomena like uh, like uh, exploitation through this idea that we have to renounce certain pleasures in order to obtain an enjoyment that is more valuable than, you know, some earthly or ontic or consumerist pleasures, you know, that we have to, uh, that you have to kind of uh, apply a certain culture of abstinence onto ourselves. And this is basically not so foreign to, you know, what, uh, uh, what neoliberalism has been pushing with, uh, on the one hand, complete deregulation of, of the markets, and on the other hand, complete dismantling of, uh, of uh, uh, the social tissue and the, the welfare state and so on, as, you know, pointing out precisely this. This is some sort of, uh, uh, you know, unproductive, uh, uh, anti-economic enjoyment, uh, which has to be uh, um, so to speak, castrated, or the society has to be castrated for this enjoyment. And once this is done, uh, uh, you know, the, there will be an increase in uh, value production, which is basically, and this is also something that Lacan is claiming, which is basically systemic enjoyment. Mm -hmm. You know, this is also one of the interesting aspects of his readings, uh, a reading of Marx, well, maybe not not so much for Marxism, but definitely for humanities, you know, or for someone like uh, uh, me who's doing political philosophy, you know, that that uh, that you have this idea of something like systemic enjoyment, uh, that there is a, a certain way of the system to enjoy, i.e., you know, orient itself obsessively towards uh, economic growth, you know, in which, you know, of course, there is this idea uh, that Marx already himself formulated, the idea of growth that, I mean, the idea of value that grows out of itself, uh, value as an automatic subject. Uh, let let yeah, me ask you this before we yeah. move on. Uh, yeah. I think our listeners might uh, might want to understand this difference between enjoyment and pleasure and how they come into your thought because uh, during our conversation we'll be coming back and back to them. So how are yeah. they different? Pleasure and enjoyment. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, you know, this is this is also uh, a huge <laughs> a huge issue for uh, for everyone uh, interested in psychoanalysis and maybe. You know, uh, maybe a bit of boring, um, um, dry remarks on uh, uh, what terms are we dealing with in various languages might might never nevertheless be helpful. Um, you know, in Freud, you have this notion of lust, which is normally translated uh, in other languages as pleasure, and which also kind of uh, means pleasure in German as well, but what Freud does with with this is uh, uh, is something that pushes the 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 meaning of the term lust 
uh, away from pleasure, more into the, the direction of uh, uh, the English lust. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a lucky coincidence this, that the, the words are even written uh, in the, the same, same way. Yeah. But the point, the point of lust, we know, you know uh, for Christianity, lust is, uh, uh, is a deadly, deadly sin. And it's a deadly sin because something autonomous uh, manifests in the field of pleasure when it becomes lustful. So pleasure is then not something like, you know, not, not a pleasurable, um, nice feel bodily or mental feeling that we, that we kind of uh, experience as a side effect of, uh, uh, of, a, of the satisfaction of a need or uh, of an intellectual uh, or bodily need uh, or desire. But it's more like, it's more like something that, that, puts us in a state out of control uh, in an, yeah that, that there is a, that there is a certain uh, overlapping of pleasure and unpleasure that we experience so there is something that demands satisfaction but we are not in control of this of this demand uh, and this is what freud called trip the drive and um, so basically, these two terms belong together: drive and uh, and and pleasure in quotation marks. But uh, uh, this is where then also the the term enjoyment comes in. Lacan was uh, the one who basically again stands at the root of this uh, of this complication, because he wanted to point out this involuntary compulsive uh, dimension of, of uh, pleasure in Freud. Uh, and um, yes, that basically something in me enjoys more than, and not only enjoys more than me consciously, but also against me and my well-being. So on the level of enjoyment, there is a certain deadly, dangerous dimension for, for the subject. That's why Freud eventually also spoke about the death drive you know, as a, as a dimension of, uh, uh, of the drive that is lethal for, for the subject and took, for instance, masochism, masochistic practice as an example where you see what the point he wants to make about pleasure is, where, where pleasure and unpleasure or pleasure emerging out of a, out of a, an erotic practice or out of a use of your own body that is evidently uh, damaging, causing pain and demanding violence, uh, you know. So um, that's, that's where this, this dimension of the death drive comes in. And the death drive doesn't mean here, you know, that we are dealing with some sort of suicidal tendency or, you know, uh, striving towards death, but that simply there is a force in the subject that demands satisfaction regardless of this subject's well-being or uh, uh, self-preserving uh, tendencies. So to get back to this, to this translation of pleasure into enjoyment, uh, Lacan proposed, you know, in, in French, uh, you have the term plaisir, pleasure, uh, for translating the Freudian notion lust. Uh, lust. Uh, so he 
proposed to use the term jouissance because it's again something in more involuntary indicated in the term itself than in pleasure. You know, pleasure means having fun, you know, whereas uh, enjoyment is not necessarily fun. And to, to kind of, you know, to kind of show why Lacan then also uh, made the link uh, with Marx and with his discussion of surplus value, uh, in Marx, funnily enough, there is also this description of capital as a specific dynamic of value in the economics and the social sphere, um, a, a description of capital as drive, which is, you know, one, one could say, okay, this is where Marx stops doing economic science because he uses a very speculative term and uh, starts doing something like philosophy. Uh, but, uh, and yes, of course, I mean, Marx uh, did take a certain term that was in circulation in his time uh, and was used for explaining all involuntary impulses in, uh, in the individual and also in the social context. So a force that pushes you, so to speak, from the back. And uh, the, well, the interesting, if we take this seriously, nevertheless, then, uh, um, then, we, get, um, then we get a kind of uh, interesting picture of Marx also as a thinker of, you know, this compulsive machinery that is called capitalism and that, you know, in every respect uh, has a certain autonomization, you know, it's not, uh, it's, it, it, it's bigger than us, so to speak, which could easily, which could easily then put us in the, in a sort of pessimistic position, like you said earlier, you know, uh, Lacan basically says this is how it is. So one can, one can very quickly run the risk uh, to say, well, uh, there is this huge social mode of production, which is a huge discursive machinery that runs its course and we can't do anything about it because uh, it's all inscribed in our unconscious and so on and so forth. Um, and here we get to another point of intersection between Freudolocanian psychoanalysis and uh, and Marx's critique of political economy. Uh, of course, there is this compulsion inscribed in the in the social, economic, and symbolic structures, uh, and of course they they cause suffering, but they also cause antagonism. So, in a way, um, without wanting to compare, uh, you know this. Uh, uh, or without, without wanting to make an, a strong analogy between uh, a neurotic subject and uh, Marxist proletarian, um, there is, you know, entering analysis uh, is already a way of, uh, you know, experiencing some sort of, uh, some sort of protest. Uh, now, the question, of course, is also how does uh, the psychoanalyst to, to whom you go to, to undergo analysis um, see his or her own task as an analyst. And uh, uh, Lacan did say at some point that uh, 
Psychoanalysis does in its own way contribute to an exit out of the capitalist discourse, which means out of the logic that is imposed by uh, uh, the omnipresence of capitalism in our social life, but also in our mental life. Um, but of course, then he adds, this is not going to be a progress if it happens only for some. So he's basically already saying, of course, psychoanalysis deals with individual cases, but it shouldn't get closed into this singularity. Uh, it has to articulate some sort of lessons that will contribute to understanding um, the logic that affects us bodily and mentally in a very damaging and consuming uh, manner, but also to um, articulate possible strategies of uh, uh, um, working against this, this logic and trying to uncouple uh, uh, yourself from, from its uh, grip and its uh, damaging effects. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, one, one could say that psychoanalysis contributes to the mental organization of political <laughs> subjectivity, in a way, just like Marxism or leftist uh, and emancipatory uh, uh, movements and politics uh, uh, are not only organization of the masses, they are also doing uh, mental organization. So, you know, it's, uh, it's in, in a way, uh, again, looking at, uh, at the same issue from, from two different angles that actually belong together. Yeah, you know, there's uh, there's something that was it was one of the most interesting things for me for me in your book, uh, which is you know that when we first uh, when anyone uh, first doubles with Marxism, uh, the one thing they'll hear is that they should not uh, personify or individualize uh, the protagonists of uh, Marxist thinking. I mean, the capitalist, the worker, capital itself, etc. Uh, mm. Yet, to me, it seems like you turn that mandate on its head and you propose that. No not only these entities uh, share the traits of individuals, but also that Marx extends that psychological effect to the, proce to the processes uh, he studies. I mean, accumulation, circulation, production, mystification, fetishization. Uh, would you agree with, you, with that? This is the way you see it. Is there a psychological agency to these, um, these, these characters of Marx's thinking? I mean... Um you know, I, I, the, what, what I always found extremely fascinating and uh, seductive in Marx is, uh, uh, and you know, I'm not the, neither the first nor the only one who's uh, uh, who's appreciating this, uh, is, is his um, rhetoric skills, his literary uh, character. You know, and if I mean uh, literary talent, uh, and I think these are these are the the passages where a lot happens. You know, one can read them as a psychologization or a kind of an attempt to to produce um, psychological personas uh, in processes themselves. Um, but you could read them also the other way around. You could also read them as a complete dissolution of 
psychology and uh, basically showing that, uh, um, yeah, that behind every character mask there is uh, there is a social process, um, and I think this is also kind of uh, kind of playing into what Lacan is was was trying to do with with this thesis that uh, we have to see uh, Marx's analysis of uh, surplus value and Freud's preoccupation with the problematic of uh, of enjoyment or pleasure you know uh, in a uh, in a homologous uh, uh, manner in in, psycho, uh, in psychoanalysis and this is uh, this is in, in embedded in the very uh, in the very name uh, we are not uh, dealing with uh, with the science of of the psyche, you know. Then we would be having uh, psychology, a logos of uh, of psyche. Uh, uh, but we are doing uh, we are dealing with the uh, dissolution, decomposition of, of of psyche, and not only in the sense that you know Freud finally demonstrates that there is no such thing as uh, as the soul. Uh, and that we have to somehow, you know, turn towards the brain or towards uh, uh, other uh, ways of understanding human thinking, but uh, basically showing that that b behind this individual psychological uh, facade there is a much more complex reality where it's not about, you know, losing uh, every individuality, you know, neither Marx nor, nor Freud are saying that there is no such thing as uh, individual human beings uh, or individual characters and so on. But, uh, um, they, you know, there is, there is a way of I don't know how to put it, that uh, in a way we're dealing with double movements. These individual characters are always already uh, somehow fused together with uh, more general uh, symbolic processes or, you know, economic dynamics. In Marx, you mentioned uh, production, circulation, distribution, and then consumption, which would be the more individual level, but one can also one can also turn it around and see capitalism as one huge uh, machine of of consumption, which is basically uh, uh, digesting the the entire planet in order to extract surplus value out of everything. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, to not be too long again in, in, in my uh, talking, um, I think Marx is doing both. I think he is, uh, uh, on the one hand, learning us to um, uh, see behind individuals a larger machinery and uh, also be aware that if we will denounce some corrupt individuals, we will not get rid of the problem. Uh, and on the other hand, to teach us also um, uh, to understand the singularization of these processes, that they do, they do uh, gain materiality and actuality in uh, individual uh, acting bodies. Uh, and that, of course, there is no... Uh, abstract metaphysics uh, uh, behind them. Uh, economic relations are the way uh, human bodies 
gravitate towards each other and also annihilate each other mutually and so on. But it's it's an activity that uh, that is not in that is beyond our control. Let's put it like that. But that beyond our control doesn't make us less uh, less responsible for it. So in this in this sense, I would say there is a certain fusion of individual and. Uh, and uh, uh, symbolic or bodily and 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 symbolic uh, rather that is at stake in Marx um, and that yeah uh, just places us in front of the the challenge uh, of thinking a different way of of articulation of the two than individ- individualism or or simple you know generalities you know I, i'm curious the words you're using like articulation or uh, deconstruction which uh, makes me want to ask you this that where does political practice fit into this and i'm, I'm using political practice in the very broad term i mean from uh, ministerial decisions to grassroots activism right anything that we that we think of as politics do these uh, these shifts this um, deconstruction that you propose uh, through this fusion of psychoanalysis and marxism uh, Um, does this act on a purely mental level which is then brought into action or is there a more dynamic relationship between that between political practice and political thinking yeah yeah no i mean absolutely i think uh, uh, i think this is where i was uh, i was trying to head uh, with uh, with this fusion or articulation or you know of of symbolic and corporeal so uh, in uh, in a way um And what what's interesting, not only again, not only in psychoanalysis, but also in uh, also in Marx, that uh, uh, we can basically associate these two uh, uh, these two fields, critique of political economy and uh, and psychoanalysis, with uh, with uh, the thesis that intellectual processes and let's say affective corporeal processes. Uh, the way symbolic processes affect our bodies are one and the same thing. Um, so thought is affect uh, would be would would be the the idea behind it. And uh, you know, I mean, the 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 thing is, uh, uh, in a way, one uh, one gets again this uh, very conflicted. Uh, antagonistic vision of uh, of political practice in in psychoanalysis as well as in uh, uh, in let's say Marxist uh, thought, um, and that's I mean if if we look at uh, if we look at just the way Freud describes uh, analytic practice and all the problems that he encounters uh, on the couch, you know in all the resistance that comes against uh, uh, the progress of the cure and so on. Um, this this not only communicate, I mean, it, what, what he wants to say by this is not that uh, there is resistance, there is a certain sabotage of, uh, uh, of the analy- analytic practice, but that this is precisely analytic practice. Analytic practice uh, is a specific mobilization of resistance against psychoanalysis and you know i mean i i think this is a this is a point um 
that that is uh, very much valid also for uh, uh, for you know social and economic uh, uh, practices. Um, as soon as as soon as one starts to confront uh, all the social problems, all the you know the the dimension of exploitation and injustice that takes place on the on the daily level in in our societies, one encounters systemic resistance. As soon as as soon as one wants to implement a more, uh, let's say in quotation marks, progressive politics uh, uh, or more um, push for more uh, social emancipation, uh, you have an entire system standing against you, resisting resisting change, re resisting transformation. Uh, and uh, in a way, I mean, this is, this is what pra political practice uh, is. It's, it's a certain way of mobilizing, working with and working against the, the systemic resistance that is there. Isn't this systemic resistance also political practice? I mean, the, the fact that the system that resists is it not doing politics at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, that's that's the most uh, uh, neuralgic point of uh, uh, of the political. That uh, basically, uh, the installed social structures, economic institutions, uh, political institutions, and also every you know every individual body or every particular body is uh, the site of an antagonism. Uh, so there is no. There is no way of assuming a neutral position or or an external position uh, from 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 the antagonism, but you can pick the side, uh, which is also where you know the Lacanian uh, theory of of the subject uh, uh, becomes very important, because the divided subject is. Fundamentally, a subject that uh, that is immersed into an antagonistic uh, situation that divide that produces him or her as a divided subject, and uh, you know also the point that Freud makes with cultural resistance is uh, very much relevant uh, in in this framework. It's not only outside; it's not only in the church or in the banks or in uh, uh, the politics that runs uh, 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 the parliament and, uh, uh, and the state. It's also in every intellectual process. So, you know, there is here again, there is, there is no divide between the social and the individual or the, the psychological for, uh, for psychoanalysis. It, it, it seems to me like the, what you're describing actually is this uh, is the thing that you call in your book as uh, you know the, the damaged life that you described that uh, for both Freud and Marx invented for their subject. So so what we're saying is that this damage of the damaged life uh, comes from getting caught between the antagonisms that you just described. Yes, I mean, uh, and and of course also. Uh, um, is associated with the fact that uh, um, that capitalism um, established a very uh, strong and very efficient uh, efficient link between 
let's say, uh, processes that, that Marx uh, uh, describes as alienation and uh, uh, production of value. Uh, so the link between alienation and valorization or, um, you know, like I'm, uh, because I've been so uh, uh, so corrupted by psychoanalysis, I, I do not believe that there that there there is such a thing as non-alienated subjectivity. Whereby I mean, of course, under alienation, I mean as a I understand alienation as a cover notion for phenomena like the un- or concepts like the unconscious, like desire, like uh, the split sub the Lacanian split subject, uh, uh, and so on. Um, so not necessarily a bad, you know, in itself a bad uh, uh, and an a priori negative uh, uh, notion, but more like uh, uh, stating something about the structure of uh, uh, of us as uh, political and social uh, social beings uh, that we are in a way thrown into relations with others. Uh, that we are fundamentally relational beings. I mean, we can also interpret uh, Aristotle's definition of uh, uh, of uh, uh, human being as zoon uh, politikon, uh, as political being, uh, uh, in this sense that yes, I mean, we are relational beings. We we basically are relations to other uh, to other uh, subjects, which are them themselves in turn again relations. So that that would be uh, this kind of uh, zero level of, of uh, the notion of alienation, uh, and then you have processes like labor or speech as well. You know that uh, that are two very um, kind of paradigmatic processes of uh, of alienation. Because when I speak, I basically not only articulate some thoughts in uh, in a symbolic chain of language that is shuffled out of my body, uh, uh, but also I am invested in this speech myself. So basically, I am putting myself out in the open uh, in every act of speech. Uh, and we know, of course, for Marx, uh, the link between labor and alienation is... Uh, not only uh, to be understood in in the capitalist sense that something is disappropriated uh, from the workers, uh, namely surplus value that is being produced or co-produced in every process of production of commodities, but more fundamentally that in when when I work, when I produce something, I basically also externalize uh, I mean, I produce an object which is basically externalized uh, work that I have produced. So uh, my work assumes the the form of an object, and this is already alienation. But to get sorry, uh, you wanted to say something. No, no, no. I, I said that this is a dead labor. What you just described. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, uh, on the level of uh, of of capital. Uh, you have then a more precise um, uh, microscopic analysis of of uh, labor. I was still thinking, you know, of uh, of the early uh, Paris manus- uh, manuscripts uh, uh, where Marx very explicitly uses the the notion of alienation in association with labor, and uh, where you can also see that the situation is much more complicated for him. That it's not about, you know. 
it doesn't necessarily mean that Marx is saying when we abolish labor or we, when we abolish capitalism and its transformation of labor into uh, this kind of consuming uh, compulsive process that determines all, all our lives and practices uh, that we will get rid of the alienating aspect of labor. Um, what will happen is just a transformation of, of, of alienation. Um, I think one, one can interpret this into Marx, but this is really more, uh, more uh, 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 yeah, uh, an academic discussion. I don't know how, 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 how interesting <laughs> Actually, it is. Actually, alienation is very central to your book, I mean, uh, and your thinking in general. And I'm thinking this, that the, the kind of, what seems very interesting to me is that it's an alienation, the one that you actually d- discern in Freud also. You have this, it's another one of the links that you discover between Marx and Freud. And uh, yeah. this uh, this type of alienation seems interesting to me. That it's not a, it's not let's say uh, an alienation from a position that the subject uh, previously held. It's an alienation in and of itself. So it, it might might seem like a strange question, but I'm curious to, uh, as to this. What what was there before alienation? <laughs> what was there before alienation? Uh, that's you know this is uh, I guess. From uh, from the perspective of both Marx and definitely Lacan, uh, but I would say also also Freud, there was definitely no non-alienated, you know, fullness of being. Uh, there was no authentic human subject or no authentic social relation. So basically, alienation is const- is, is something constitutive. For, for the social link and for, uh, for, for the subject that emerges with, with the social link. So in a way, uh, what was there before the symbolic? Uh, what was there before, before language? You know, this is, this is, how, uh, this is how I understand this, this question uh, when it is raised. What was before alienation? And, you know, among, among Lacanians, you know, someone like Slavoj Žižek uh, also, you know, makes, makes very often this, this point is that uh, when, when, one, when one hears this question, uh, what was there before alienation is uh, uh, to be reformulated that this before was created together with alienation itself. And also that that together with an alienated state comes also the idea of what would have been if we remove alienation out of our daily lives. Uh, so that's why that's why I'm also um, I'm also not I mean I'm very much invested in kind of pinpointing the different nuances that the term alienation. Uh, ha- can have so not that that it doesn't necessarily uh, signify only something like loss of the self or uh, loss of authenticity, loss of uh, 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 unity and so on, or conflictuality and so on and so forth, uh, but that that it can also basically be thought as uh, as the symbolic operation that brings political subjectivity into uh, into existence if you noticed i was uh, basically taking examples where alienation is uh, understood negatively because it signifies a process that uh, that is secondary 
that kind of deprives us of our authenticity or our unity and so on. Uh, but was there such a thing, you know, as, as unity ever? Uh, you know, all the, all the for instance, uh, uh, nationalistic uh, uh, fantasies of uh, uh, of national unities are are basically uh, um, you know kind of uh, uh, targeting a state that that was never there and they basically uh, externalize uh, externalize this kind of moment of disturbance of uh, uh, some presumable authenticity in in the enemy figures of the other. So this is where also, you know, I, uh, the right attitude towards the question of alienation uh, implies also the right attitude towards, uh, towards uh, difference, you know, not only towards uh, cultural differences or uh, religious differences or sexual differences and so on, but also difference that constitutes me as a, uh, uh, as a um, presumably individual uh, human being, um, so that that there that there is uh, an ongoing process of self differentiation in me, not only outside uh, outside of me. That's why I also, you know, like kind of uh, um, uh, drop this uh, maybe a bit clumsily uh, 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 clumsy notion of politics of non identity uh, or non identity politics, uh, because in Neoliberalism, identity politics began to signify precisely this, uh, you know, uh, presumable, presumable authentic relation to oneself, whether it's uh, one person or a, a community of people or, uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, a nation uh, and so on and so forth. So it's uh, um, this, with, with the notion of alienation, we basically have... Uh, we basically have not only a very crucial problem that uh, uh, that we do have to struggle against uh, in our political practice and our organization of our organization against uh, capitalist modes of exploitation, but also we have uh, uh, we have a tool against the fabrication of uh, some sort of mythical organic unities, which are all more or less exclusive and more or less walk into the trap that uh, is set up by capitalism itself, namely that these presumable organic unities always already stand in a competitive relation to each other and have to ultimately annihilate them, uh, themselves mutually. Okay, and, and on that note, Samuel Thompson, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. Thank you again for having me. It was a great pleasure to be here.